Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. I am introducing the next speaker, which is uh, Pastor Andrew Dion. He is our pastor here at uh, at, Trin- at Trinity Presbyterian Church. Um, I first met Andrew when we were up in Toledo, Ohio, at Christ the Word uh, Presbyterian Church, and um, got to know him as a friend and as one that I looked up to with great respect. And I thought, once he got this call down to the south, I'd never see him again. But I wished him well. Um, But then, we ended up down here, and the Lord uh, opened the door for us to be able to come here, and we are um, very happy to be here and to be a part of this uh, body. Andrew um, has six children, um, ranging from, (laughs) all right, 18 to 8, 19 to 8, oh yeah, that's right, you, Anna, she's the oldest, if you're wondering, the one playing on the piano here, so anyway, um, we are very happy that uh, he is a part of of this conference as well. I am excited about what he has to offer for us. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you for saving us, for rescuing us from our sins, from uh, the destruction that our first father, Adam, made. And Lord, we thank you for the second Adam. We thank you for the work that he did perfectly, the obedience that he showed towards you. And Lord, as we uh, contemplate um, friendship, Lord, we ask that you would be with us, that you would uh, encourage us, that you would uh, rebuke us, that you would uh, work through this time, and may it be to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let me take you back to a sermon I preached uh, back in May. We planned a father-son overnight camping trip at Caleb Booth's property, and a beautiful property. It was new property. He had worked hard to get it prepared for us. And then very few men came to that event. And I was fit to be tied. Um, And the passage the following Sunday, I didn't line this up. The Lord did it, was, was John 11, which speaks to the friendship between Jesus and Lazarus. And I exhorted the men as strongly as I could that um, morning. I uh, spoke of my disappointment. I spoke of the missed opportunity that it was for us to pursue friendship. I vamped on the importance of friendship among among the men. 
And do you know what happened after that sermon? The women of the church implemented everything I had talked about. And their friendships have deepened in the church, and the men have done nothing. The men have done nothing in response to that sermon. And I take part of the blame for that, of course. The men remain aloof from one another. There's a spiritual war raging that has been going on in earnest um, since the beginning of the sexual revolution, at least in our nation. Um, Here it is in a nutshell. The homosexual movement is killing male friendship. That's what's happening. The homosexual movement is killing male friendship. No man who is living in obedience to the sex God assigned him at conception wants to be mistaken as a homosexual. Right? And because of the incessant propaganda of the homosexualist movement, any relationship men have with one another uh, is potentially viewed as being tinged with homosexuality. Remember, it was Alfred Kinsey at the outset of the sexual revolution in the 50s who taught us that our sexuality lies somewhere on a continuum between heterosexual and homosexual. That's a wicked and wrong conclusion. That was an agenda-driven conclusion. God has made them male and female. And then he defined in his word just exactly what that meant and who was supposed to hook up with who and what it means to live in obedience to our sex, which is a sign to us in the womb before we have a choice about it. So let me state that problem again. The homosexual movement is killing male friendship. Another way to put it is this. The sexualization of male relationships is killing male friendships. Uh, That's the thesis of of this essay that I want to share with you, a part of it, by Anthony Esselin. um, Whom I know essentially as a, a writer for Touchstone magazine. Um, he published this uh, piece called A Requiem for Friendship back in 2005. And here's the whole title, A Requiem for Friendship, Why Boys Will Not Be Boys and Other Consequences of the Sexual Revolution. And so let me read the beginning of this to you and then jump forward and read another section. I've shared this with our church, you'll recognize it. He starts this way, Sam Gamgee has been fool enough to follow his beloved master Frodo into Mordor, the realm of death, to rescue Frodo from the orcs who have taken him captive and who will slay him as soon as he ceases to be of use in finding the ring. Sam has fought the monstrous spider Shelob, has eluded the pursuit of the orcs and has dispatched a few of them to their merited deaths. Finally, he finds Frodo in the upper room of a small, filthy cell, naked, half-conscious, lying in a heap in a corner. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, my dear, he cries. It's Sam, I've come. With a bluff tenderness, he clasps him to his breast. 
assuring him that it is really he, Sam, in the flesh. Still groggy, Frodo can hardly believe it, but he clutches at his friend. It seems to him all the tissue of a dream that an orc with a whip has turned into Sam. And it is all mixed up with the sound of singing that he thought he heard and tried to answer. That was me singing, says Sam, shaking his head and saying that he had all but given up hope of ever finding his friend again. He cradles Frodo's head as one would comfort a troubled child. At that, a snigger raises from the audience in the theater. What, are they gay? An ignorant but inevitable response. Shakespeare or his narrative persona expressed in his sonnets a passionate love for an unnamed and not too loyal young man. So Shakespeare must have been homosexual. Despite the absence of evidence and despite his persona's explicit statement in Sonnet 20 that the young man's sexual accoutrements are of no interest or use to him whatsoever. The bachelor Abe Lincoln long shared a bed with his closest friend Joshua Speed and later wrote letters expressing with what seems a touch of self-deprecating irony his fear that he would be lonely once Speed had taken a wife. Lincoln therefore must be homosexual. No matter that men and women too commonly shared beds and also commonly spoke of their friendship in strong earthy language that now embarrasses. The poet Edmund Spencer, celebrator of his own wedding in one of the most brilliant poems in English, used to share a bed with his fellow and uh, his friend and fellow scholar at Cambridge, Gabriel Harvey. There you go. Your love to me was finer than the love of women, laments David in a public song when he learns of the death of his friend Jonathan. We know why. So that's where he starts this essay, and, and I want to I jump forward. He, he draws some conclusions, and he says this. He said, friendship and the signs upon which it must subsist are in a bad way. I will focus on the friendships of men since that is what I know about. My comparable thing, uh, many comparable things might be said about the friendships of women. We still have the word friendship and we still have something of the reality, but it is distant, dilute, and bloodless. For modern American men, friendship is no longer forged in the heat of battle or in the dust of the plains as they drive their herds across half a continent or in the choking air of a coal mine, or even in the cigar smoke of a debating club. This, that is partly because our lives, for better and for worse, no longer involve the risk and the sweat that was the cement of deep friendship. No man will help hew the oaks for our cabin, because we no longer live in cabins. No man will stand by as we jump overboard to set the trawling net because we have no boat and set no net. We live too comfortably for that. Under such fortunate circumstances, we need all the more the camaraderie and intellectual risk of the club. But gentlemen's clubs have vanished or have been sued out of existence. More than ever do men need to come together to eat and drink and argue and think because more than ever their work separates them from each other but now they are virtually forbidden to do so. It is but more of the devastation wrought by the sexual revolution 
That we fail to see it as such is no surprise. Naturally, when we think of the recrudescence of paganism, we think first of its damage to the family and to relations between men and women. We think of divorce, pornography, unwed motherhood, abortion, and suicidally falling birth rates. But the sexual revolution has also nearly killed male friendship as devoted to anything beyond drinking and watching sports. And the homosexual movement, a logically inevitable result of 40 years of heterosexual promiscuity and feminist folly, bids fair to finish it off and nail the coffin shut. What is more, those who will suffer most from this movement are precisely those whom our society, stupidly considering them little more than pests or adults, has ignored, and I mean boys. Later in the article, he says, there are three great loves upon which all cultures depend. Can you guess what those three great loves are? The love between a man and a woman in marriage, the love between a mother and her children, and then the camaraderie that used to exist among men. And he says, the camaraderie among men, a bond that used to be strong enough to move mountains. The first two, the love between a man and a woman and the love between a mother and a child, have suffered greatly. The third has almost ceased to exist. So let's go to scripture and read the verse uh, you might be thinking of when I mention friendship. It's Proverbs 17.17. Proverbs 17.17. Some of you may be able to quote it off the top of your head. But this is what it says, a, f a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. And let me, let me state this, women's relationships, I think we would all agree, thrive in an environment of nurture, where there's nurture, relieving distress. Women love to relieve the distress um, particularly of children. This is why women generally make better nurses than men. I think I can say such sexist things here, right? Men's relationships thrive in an environment of adversity, right? Fighting a common enemy. That's where men thrive. Uh, think of this silly example. Suppose you have a crying baby in another room. Okay, the woman's instinct is to go pick up the baby, cradle it until the child is comfortable. The man's instinct is to soundproof the room. Right? And no woman, you know, the, the, the woman thinks of the child, the man thinks of the noise. Now, I'm exaggerating. I, you know, no man is that heartless and no... Uh, woman is that godly <laughs> to not think of the noise, right, or self-controlled. But, but you get my point in that. Uh, men made by God to lead see adversity and determine to overcome the adversity, and sometimes they can be heartlessly task-oriented in that pursuit. Nonetheless, men need relationships, 
Men have to have relationships. Men have to have um, certain kinds of relationships. The respect of a woman is very important. The obedience of children is very important. And the brother who comes alongside of us in adversity is critical, but that is very difficult today. It's very difficult. The homosexualist movement is, is killing male friendship because we are fearful of the backlash if we, if we show our love to one another as men. We're fearful of the backlash. Isolation also is killing male friendship. Isolation. Um, or perhaps isolation is simply a symptom of our friendlessness. It's a result of that. COVID lockdowns did not help. Uh, but more than that, technology has not helped male friendships. Technology has allowed us to think we have relationships when we have none. Um, Sherry Turkle calls it being alone together. Okay? It might be better to say that technology has allowed us to think we are together when we are in fact alone with our phones and computers and world crafting games. So isolation, brothers and sisters, is a tool of the devil. Do you remember what scripture says about how God and Moses used to communicate with one another? Do you remember what it says? You remember that it says they spoke face to face, but you don't remember the last half of that phrase, do you? The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. Friends speak face to face. Friends speak face to face. And the devil would prefer you were alone with your virtual reality devices, which give you a false sense of intimacy. And the, and the prevalence of options for entertainment have been a contributing factor to men's isolation too. We just have a relentless number of choices to, to fill up our time. There are many contributing factors to, to the friendlessness that exists among men, and the devil delights in them. He delights in them. He promotes them. I mean, think of Jonah. Think of Jonah. When he determined to reject God's command and will, what did he do? He isolated himself and fled to where no one could possibly assist him in his adversity. No one could assist him, and so God assisted him by the means of a giant fish. Where were his friends? He had run away from them. He had fled from the presence of the Lord, and he had fled from the presence of his friends. Remember, Adam fled from the presence of the Lord as well. Remember Elijah, fearing that wretched Jezebel. Fled to the wilderness, and what did he do? He plopped himself down under a juniper tree, and do you remember what he said? It is enough now, Lord, take my life. For I am not better than my father's. And then he went to a cave, and God asked him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? What are you doing here all by yourself? And, and Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And what does he say then? I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm all by myself. Elijah needed only one friend at that time to say to him, I haven't forsaken God's covenant. I haven't done that, Elijah. I'm with you. I'm, I am right with you. But God was gracious to him, though, and told him what was true. He said he was not alone, that 7,000 had not bowed their knee to Baal. Now, my point is this. Your isolation, particularly from other men, is the devil's delight. He wants you to be alone so that he can devour you when you are depressed and faithless in the midst of your adversity. But you must remember, brothers, your friends, your friends were born for that day of adversity. That's why there are friends, because your adversity will come and you will need those friends to be faithful at that time. Well, what does is, what is friendship between men look like? Here are a few thoughts that I have on that. Um, first, this Another quote that I frequently go back to when thinking about friendship from Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, and his Reformed pastor. Here's what he says. Friendship must be cemented by piety. You know what piety is. It's not a word we use anymore. It's godliness, right? A wicked man, he says, cannot be a true friend And if you befriend their wickedness, you show that you are wicked yourself. Pretend not to love them if you favor their sins and seek not their salvation. By favoring their sins, you will show your enmity to God. And then how can you love your brother? If if you be their best friend, help them against their worst enemies. Again, there it is, male friendship thrives in adversity. Help those men through their their struggle. And And he goes on, and think not in all sharpness inconsistent with love. Parents correct their children, and God himself chastens every son whom he receives. Augustine said, better it is to love even with the accompaniment of severity than to mislead by excess of lenity. Right? Better to be severe excessively than to be soft toward your brothers who are sinning. And so that's one of the goals of that's one of the goals of friendships between men. It's it's godliness, it's accountability, it's it's sanctification, it's the pursuit of God, all of which is is very difficult. Right? Last time I checked, you like I fell in Adam, and have indwelling sin. And you agonize like the Apostle Paul. 
Now let me also say this, that which is killing friendship between men, the supposed sexual tension between, between men, is what actually makes friendship between men and women unwise and improper. Okay? It's unwise and improper for men and women to be friends. I'm going to say that again because I want it to sink in. It's improper for men and women to be friends. Stop texting your male friends, women. Stop texting your girl friends, men. It is unwise, right? There is inevitably sexual tension between members of the opposite sex. And men and women must be friendly with one another, but they cannot be friends. They cannot. The sexual dimension is actually present there. And that almost always leads what many refer to as an, and what are the, how do they put it? They say an inequality of expectation. <laughs> In other words, the man thinks that it's something that it isn't, or the woman thinks that it's something that it isn't, and they're not on the same wavelength, but everybody's expecting something of it. And so one, of, one or the other inevitably wants it to be more than a friendship. And oh, I mean, how the heart can deceive in that area, right? If you are a married man and you have friends who are female, you are going to make shipwreck of your marriage and your faith. You need to protect that relationship you have with your wife. Friendship is a relationship devoid of sexual tension. That's the glory of friendship. It's devoid of sexual tension. Your wife is not your best friend. Okay? <laughs> She's not your best friend. She is in a one flesh union with you. I mean, let's stop diminishing marriage by calling each other best friends. You are in a one flesh union. Friendship between men is, is so necessary because if he is being faithful as a man on mission to overcome adversity in his own heart, adversity in his home, adversity in his culture, he will need those brothers born to assist him in that fight. He's got to have brothers in the fight with him. And so men, you are called to ad wrestle adversity to the ground. That's your calling, and you can't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. You need friends to remind you of God's truth. You need friends to remind you of God's goodness, of everything that he's written in his word, of his calling. You need to be told by your friends of the wickedness of pornography, of, of the wickedness of self-pity. Right, which you've spent years wallowing, which I've spent years wallowing in. You need to be told of the wickedness of selfishness. That's what friends are for. To help you through the adversity that is living in your own heart. To help you through the adversity of, of children who are sinners. <laughs> that you love, but they sin. You need help. Now, here's a bad example. Um, 2 Samuel. Spending a lot of time in 
Samuel. Second Samuel 13. Here's Absalom again. But this has to do with another son of David. Now it was, this is the beginning of 13, 1 through 6. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. And Jonadab then said to him, hmm, I've got a plan. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Right, And then David goes and, and does and it leads to despicable, terrible sin. Incest. Right? What kind of friend was Jonadab? Was that a friendship cemented by piety? No, that was a friendship cemented by wickedness. Which is often what our friendships are. We need a break from our families. We need a break from the, the fight against sin. We need a break from all the adversity we face, and so we're going to go out with the buddies and just have a good time, right? And so that friendship just becomes about cementing wickedness. But Scripture says that bad company corrupts good morals. Your friends should only be those who push you toward what is good, what is godly, what is right, what is true. You need friends who will faithfully wound you and then say, get back in the fight. Get up. Fight. Get back in there. The devil would keep you either alone or unencouraged or surrounded by fools who merely push you toward superficiality, which is what sports are, or wickedness, drunkenness, carousing, all those things. You used to give yourself to, but then you were washed and redeemed in the blood of Christ. Interestingly, um, Baxter uses the, talks about the cement of friendship. Esselin, in that essay I mentioned earlier, uses the same idea that friendship is cemented by something. He says risk and sweat are the cement of friendship between men. Risk and sweat. I think that's the same thing as saying that male friendship thrives in adversity. Think of David and Jonathan. What was their adversity? Saul. Saul was their adversity. Saul wanted them dead. 
and they were cemented together in piety. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Were they friends? The scripture says so. Listen to this. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Remember the decree, right? To be destroyed, all the wise men of Babylon? Well, there's their adversity. And David goes back to them and he shares with them, this is what's coming. And it bonds them together, that adversity. And so male friendship is cemented in, is, is nurtured, thrives and requires whatever you want to say in adversity. And we all face it. Now, how do we encourage friendships between men? And particularly being between fathers. And, I mean, help me think through this. I honestly am frustrated You've, we've got we've to figure this out for all the reasons that I just said because adversity is coming and we're going to die if we don't have brothers, if we don't have friends, men. And so I think we need to put men together in the proper context. And it's got to be a context that doesn't feel gay. Okay? Right? It's, men must be reminded continually of the spiritual battle that's raging around them. We so easily forget that, right? We become comfortably numb and our entertainments don't help us. But that, that battle is raging. And so we must remind um, men to be continually engaged in the battle. They must be reminded that they are not fighting alone in that battle and that they have brothers whatever you want to call them, comrades, right, who are there with them. Now, how do we encourage male friendships? Um, men must learn to talk about their spiritual battles and temptations. How many times have we heard that today? Men have got to be able to engage, talk about something other than superficialities. I hate talking about superficialities because I'm terrible at it. I just don't have that many thoughts in my head. Some of you have thoughts in your head, and they just come spilling out, and I'm always envious of you. Right? But it's often superficialities because we just want to fill the silence. We just want to be able to, to um, say something. But we have, to, we have to learn how to talk about our spiritual battles and our temptations and not to revel in our temptations, but to find encouragement to oppose them violently. We must contemplate Jesus' words that he said we must gouge out our eyes that cause us to sin and cut off our hands that cause us to sin. I mean, Jesus really said that. We must contemplate the fact that following Jesus Christ means laying down our lives. Right? And we can spiritualize that to death. 
We must think about the, the fact that Jesus told that rich young ruler that following him meant selling all that he had and giving the proceeds to the poor. And then we must remember that that rich young ruler refused to do it. We must see that and hate how we imitate that lover of money. And sometimes it takes a brother who's more sanctified than you to come along and say, that was such wickedness. And that wickedness is in your own heart and it's in my heart. Here's another way that we can encourage um, men to be friends. Our households must be properly ordered so that men may pursue friendships. Um, don't hear what I'm not saying. I could preach about the importance of women having friends and that my sermon preached earlier this year led to friendships among the women I'm thankful for. But that wasn't the the nut I was trying to crack. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, that's not my topic today, right? The, the friendships that women must have. But hear this, our homes must be ordered and women must love the fact that their primary work is to be the oikodespotane, right? The, the ruler of the house, so that the man may go, then go out, right, and face down adversity with the assistance of his godly friends. That takes an ordered home, right? Some wives will not allow their husbands to have friendships. Right? And that will be to the detriment of your own household. Right? That does not mean that, wives, you should allow your husband to go play golf every Saturday. <laughs> it does not mean that he needs drinking buddies and a membership in the, the local chapter of, of whatever sports club, football club, right? meaning soccer. It means that, it means this, that he can be free to find encouragement in the midst of the adversity that he faces, and he can find that encouragement from godly friends. So many women forbid that of their husbands because they are unwilling to do the work that God has assigned to their own sex, which is glorious work which is one of those three pillars of love, that love between a mother and her children that, that, that keeps all of society functioning. It's a glorious thing. But the husband needs to be free to have friendships. Again, so do the wives, so do the women. But that's not my topic today. And then this, another way to encourage the friendships of men is that men need to work together, which is adversity. Work is adversity. Since the fall of, of mankind, work is adversity. It's the main adversity that we face, other than the sin of our own hearts. Right? We don't need to visit together in coffee shops. We, we don't need to pursue all kinds of recreation, right? We, we need to work together. 
That's what men need to do. We need to work together. Our men's ministry has for a long time gotten together to read um, great theological books over meat, and no one will read. I can't get men to read. Men show up for the meat, but they haven't read. <laughs> that is pathetic. That is really pathetic. That is to live for your stomach and not for your soul. Right? Our, and so we've gotten together to read books and discuss. But I think, you know, I wonder if it wouldn't be better if um, just to labor together to instead of triple B Bible book barbecue, we should just get together and work. Because actually men talk when they work. And so, you know, the church needs to put a concrete pad out back and put up a shed so that we can get all the chemicals out of the building and, you know, fire stuff, and you know. And that should be our men's ministry meeting. Right? It's hard. It's physical. And it's also an opportunity to teach the young, man some, young men some skills, things that I didn't learn. And all along, as we don't have to look each other in the eyes across a coffee table, right, we'll be talking as our hands are busy. We'll be getting into each other's lives, not staring into each other's eyes. <laughs> or maybe we make a list of work that needs to be done in the the houses and yards of the church, and that's our men's ministry, is to just check this off and get it done. Put up fences and clean out garages and um, put insulation in attics. And so maybe our men's ministries need to be more about working and less about talking, although that has the benefit of becoming talking. Right, so um, I don't know. I mean, help me think through this. What would that look like? But um, I'll keep that to myself. Here's another thing. Men's friendships will be encouraged when we have the right common enemy. When we have the correct common enemy, okay? It's not women as red pillars think. It's not women. They're not the enemy. It's not government, as reconstructionist libertarians think. It's not anthropomorphic global warming, as the environmentalists think. It's not everything out there that we hear is wrong when we watch Tucker on Fox News. Right? The enemy... <laughs> is sin. We have met the enemy, and the enemy is us, right? The, the enemy is sin within our own hearts, within our homes, within our flocks, and only then the sin of our culture. Our friendships, dear brothers will, will and sisters, will grow when we come together to gain encouragement in the fight against our indwelling sin. The sin of our own hearts, right? COVID belligerating has brought a lot of men together. 
But it's my hunch that many of those men love the camaraderie of that common enemy precisely because it allows them to feel self-righteous and never deal with their own horrible sins and the household they live in that is falling apart because of their neglect. They see the sins out there. They don't see them in their own hearts. And so figuring out that enemy, and the enemy is the sin of our own hearts, and focusing on that should help establish friendships among men if we are willing to talk about them and get beyond superficialities, right? And if, if we see the importance of it. So what is at stake in the fight? Think of the cost of a generation of friendless men in the church. Do you think that would be costly? A generation of men who are fighting adversity all by themselves. Even Jesus surrounded himself with 12 men. What would it lead to? A generation of friendless men in the church. What would that lead to? Well, um, a further severing of fellowship among men which will lead to the strength of men waning as they wrestle with real adversity alone, which will lead to the collapse of homes and churches because the task given to Adam was to cultivate and keep the garden, right? The, the garden over which man has responsibility will then become uncultivated and unkempt. Self, family, church, and culture will fall apart if men do not have robust relationships. I mean, is that not what we're seeing? I mean, we're, we're deep into this, right? We're deep into this. Satan is very thrilled with the way that our culture is going, with the way that our homes are going, with the way that our, our uh, lack of fight is going. And so, yes, we must bolster the love and respect between a man and his wife, we must bolster the love between mothers and children, but we must also build that third pillar among men, that bond of love that Esalen said used to move mountains. And I just feel like I'm, I mean, my friends are the men I work with in the church. Those are my friends. My friends are the men you've heard and will hear today. My friends are the men of Evangel Presbytery because they're so helpful to me because they'll tell me when I'm losing control of my emotions, being a hothead. On Genesis 2.15, Calvin has this comment. He says, men were created to employ themselves in some work and not to lie down in inactivity and idleness. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Right? Handing it down to sons, 
better cultivated. And so that work, that work that we've been made to engage in, that adversity, and that attempt to hand on to our children something better cultivated than what was received, whether that be our own personal piety, well-ordered homes, our churches that have the three marks, or a nation that actually fears the Lord, that depends upon the strength of men. And the strength of men depends upon the power and powerful encouragement of friendship among men. Now, I could end there, but there's one final thing that I want you to contemplate. And I started thinking about this after I had gone through that. That would be a good place to end. Um, it feels right, but, um, but it's hard to, hard to shut up. Did our Lord Jesus Christ have friends? And I started thinking about that. And the answer I've, I've come to is, is yes and no. There actually is a no to this. Yes, in this sense, he had friends. The Apostle John is described throughout John's gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a closeness that didn't even exist among the 12. Right? Peter, James, and John got to go to special places with Jesus that the others weren't invited to, especially that transfiguration when they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ unveiled. Lazarus is called by Jesus our friend, and the weeping of, Lazar of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus is proof of friendship, right? That, that may, I mean, if we do go cosmic, it's Jesus weeping about the sins of the world, but but, but it's more than that, if that could be said. But there's another sense in which he had no friends. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. And the apostles would do that, save the apostle whom Jesus loved, John. He was despised despised and we did not esteem him and I'd also say there's a sense in which Jesus didn't have friends because um, every God's people in relation to him are his wife that's his spouse he's loving his spouse he's loving his bride right this is a they're united by the spirit in a way. And so in that sense, it's much, it's, it's a different relationship. But here's the glory. Here's the glory. Here's something to encourage you. Jesus considered you his friend. Jesus considers you his friend. And in addition to the glory of his father, it was the thought of you that led him to endure the cross, that adversity. The utter dereliction of his father. The cross in which he became the curse and your sin.
Now think about these words spoken to his men in the upper room, right? Just hours before he died, what did Jesus say to his men? He said, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. He was the friend you needed to get through the devastating adversity you faced in being dead in your sins. And like a good friend, he carried his friends through their greatest trial. He's carried you through it. He's been that friend who comes alongside of you and says, yes, and amen in me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. What a friend. What a friend. We need friendships among men that are just a pale version, just a a fraction of that friendship, right? Well, let's pray and ask God to give that to us. Father, we need your help. We need friends. We feel like we don't have them. And that's because we've been unwilling to be a good friend to others. So help us to repent. Help us to love our brothers. Give us these friendships that move mountains again. May it lead to us overcoming the sins of our hearts, the sins of our homes, the sins of our churches, the sins of our culture. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.